Welcome to Legalese, the Business Disability Forum legal podcasts, making the complex comprehensible. I'm Bella Gore, and my guest today is Catherine Cassily, a barrister at Cloisters Chambers who specialises in equality and human rights with a particular emphasis on disability. Is that right, Catherine? Or Cathy, because we go back a long way. Um, we've been uh, discrimination lawyers, disability lawyers for more years uh, than I care to remember together. Yes. Hello. Hello. So today we're going to be talking about goods and services cases under the Equality Act. So it's the rights that disabled customers, clients, service users, whatever they might be called, people who under the Equality Act have a right not to be discriminated against by service providers. But what I want to be exploring with you today, Catherine, is why are there so few cases under these provisions against service providers in comparison to employment cases, for example? Is it because there's no discrimination or very little discrimination against disabled customers, clients? Or is it because of the law and enforcement and that the Equality Act really isn't fit for purpose? So we've only got about half an hour to tackle this, plenty of time, I'm sure you'll agree. You've acted in some of the most well-known cases under the goods and services provisions of the Equality Act, haven't you? Could you tell us about a few of them? Well, yes. I mean, in in relation to disability, um, I acted in the case of Pauline in First Bus, which was a a case which went to the Supreme Court about Mr. Pauline's attempts to occupy the disabled wheelchair space on the bus. I've also acted in the case of Freddie and Hall, the... Bull and Bull, which was a case about a gay couple who wanted to occupy a double room in a and b which was run by a Christian couple who said that they couldn't um, occupy that. Um, and then I've acted in a number of other disability cases which have gone to, variously to the Court of Appeal. In relation to the number of cases, you're right, there, there are a significantly lower number of cases in relation to disability that have gone to court in relation to services and, and goods than in employment. Those cases have been increasing, I have to say, and that's for a variety of reasons. But in terms of why they don't reach the courts, they tend to settle. In terms of my caseload, about 60-odd percent is made up of non-employment cases. And is that disability, 60-odd percent disability non-employment? Um, most of those are disability. I also deal with transgender discrimination, some sexual orientation, some religion and belief, but most of it is disability, and most of those settle, and very few of those get to court. Why, why do they settle? I think you only have to walk outside, really, or look outside to see that there are lots of cases waiting to be taken. We're in the London Bridge area of London, walk along the street, look at the steps to the shops, not only are there not permanent ramps, but there are no bells to those shops that disabled people can ring to have a, a, a temporary ramp brought out to them. Um, so there are lots of cases waiting to be brought. A lot of the cases are very strong, and so those cases get settled. Is that a good thing, though, for affecting change, and um, the fact that they settle? Because often that means that nobody gets to hear about those cases. Other service providers don't know that the case has been brought against a particular service provider. 
there's confidentiality agreements in place. So nobody gets to know that these cases are being brought. So is settlement necessarily a good thing for disabled people's rights? I think it varies, to be honest. I mean, you're right, some of the cases have confidentiality agreements attached to them. Um, but with other cases, there may not be a confidentiality agreement. Most of the cases that I deal with, it's not just money, there is also change. I mean, most of the, the claimants that I deal with, and this is a real difference, I think, to employment cases, when someone's lost their job in particular, what they need really is financial compensation, particularly when they haven't got another job. When someone has been discriminated against in relation to a service, what they want is change to that service so that they can use it again. So what matters to them is making sure that that service is accessible. So with the settlement often comes a change. Now, even if there's a confidentiality clause, there will be change there. If there isn't a confidentiality clause, and there isn't always, then that change can be publicised. The other thing I would say is that as well as the cases that, that I'm involved with, I know that colleagues are becoming more involved in these cases, and there is a burgeoning um, litigant in person movement amongst disabled people. What does that mean, litigant in person? So these are individual disabled people who are bringing their own cases and they are supporting each other in bringing those cases. That's an interesting point because it is actually quite difficult to bring a claim in the county court and these goods and services cases do have to be brought in the county court and it's true isn't it that it's harder to bring a claim in the county court than it is in the employment tribunal for example where a lot of people are also litigants in person. I think it it can be, you're right, it can be much more formalistic in the county court, you have to make applications with fees unless you have fee remission and you're because you're in receipt of benefit. There were fees in the employment tribunals, and after the, the Unison case, those fees were removed, although we don't know if they'll be reintroduced. So that's another deterrent, isn't it? I mean, fees to bring a claim. I mean, what are the fees to bring a claim um, in the in the county court? The fees depend on how much money you're claiming and the nature of your remedy, but I think they, they range probably from a few hundred pounds up to maybe a thousand. But the advantage, obviously, of the, the county court is that the, the remedy that, that people seek isn't just a monetary remedy, it's also potentially an order requiring a service provider to do something, and that's one of the powers that the county court has. So is that what's known as an injunction? I mean, an injunction I think of as being stop doing something, can the county court say to a service provider, not just stop doing something, but actually specifically do something? Yes, it can. Um, so I've been involved, I think that there haven't been many injunctions awarded, and, and that's one of the, one of the aspects, um, I suppose, of, of there not having been a huge number of cases that have actually made it to the county court. But um, I've been involved, I think, in all bar one of the injunctions that have been awarded by County Court Inequality Legislation. And in the case of RBS and Allen, for example, Mr Allen was unable to get into his branch of RBS. Um, he was a wheelchair user. And he was very young, wasn't he? Yes. He was so he'd, he was 16 at the time that we brought the litigation, and he'd opened an account as a child. RBS had actually come into his school to, um, to entice people to, to open accounts. He wasn't able to get in to his bank. 
and the court, as well as awarding him compensation, ordered that the bank install a platform lift at a cost of around £250,000. The platform lift cost £250,000, but the amount of compensation that Mr Allen or any other complainant in the county court might be awarded is going to be nowhere near £250,000. Um, am I right in thinking that? Yes. I mean, the, 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 the compensation awards for discrimination are based on an employment case called Vento, and that set out three bands, broadly speaking, um, depending on the nature of what's called an injury to feeling. So that's really what, what the, the money is awarded for. Um, obviously, if you've experienced a personal injury or something, then, then you can also claim for that. So awards do tend to be what most people would, would think of as relatively low. In services cases, the courts have tended to award around 7500 was was generally speaking what the awards were sort of stuck out. There have been a couple that are in the 20s, 20000 but that tends to be it. Obviously, there's costs people can get as well. They get their money back that they've spent on legal costs, for example, or indeed on their fees. If the disabled person loses their case, they could also have costs awarded against them. So not only if a disabled person wants to bring a case, they have to pay the fees up front, which can be quite quite a lot, as you said, up to £1,000. Presumably they have to pay a lawyer, and we lawyers are not always cheap, it's fair to say, and then what they may be awarded isn't a great deal, but if they lose, they'd have to pay the other side's costs. If they're not in small claims, then yes. There are, there are different ways that, that individuals can, can bring claims. They, they might bring them in the small claims court, but only really if they're suitable for small claims, and then they're not exposed to cost risks. But it's, it's limited, isn't it, small claims to compensation of how much? Oh, it's, it's up to 10000 now, I think. Right, OK. So the, the monetary issue isn't, isn't such a, an issue there. The issue is really how long the case is likely to take and whether it needs expert evidence. Um, if it's more than a day, it's not really suitable for small claims. And a lot of these cases are quite complex. They are quite complex, and they're not really suitable for small claims. Um, and then if it's outside of that track, uh, I mean, realistically, a lot of these claims do need legal advice. There are lawyers who will, who will do the claims on a, on a conditional fee agreement. Conditional fees means that individuals don't have to pay unless they, unless they succeed. And then really the costs are recuperated, recouped from the other side. But one of the things that uh, have been recommended by both the House of Lords Committee in looking at the Equality Act and also the Women in the Equality Committee recently was that one-way qualified cost shifting, which applies in personal injury cases, that that should be applied to Equality Act cases. Oh, now you need to explain that. Yes. So what that means is, so if you have a personal injury claim and you bring a claim in the courts, there is a provision in the rules of court which says that the defendant can't claim its costs against you if you lose without the permission of the court. And what that does is it, it takes away the fear of costs. If well, you well does it? Because as I understand it, if a disabled person brings a claim in the county court and there is this one-way qualified cost shifting. cost shifting, that trips off the tongue. Quarks, it's known as. Quarks. Right. Excellent. Quarks. If there is quarks in place, but there is still a risk that the judge will say, well, actually, you should pay the costs. My understanding is that that doesn't really happen in PI cases anyway. So that, okay. that's my understanding. 
tends not to happen. I put it to you, Catherine. I've always wanted to say that. Do barristers actually say that? I've never heard it, but... Anyway, I put it to you that there is a disincentive there also in bringing cases that test the boundaries or test the law. Because if you've got lawyers taking cases on conditional fees so that they will only get paid if they win, they're only going to take cases that they're pretty sure they're going to win. So they're not going to take those cases that are slightly on the edges, if you like, where if you and I, as you remember, in the early days of the Disability Discrimination Act, would take a case to see what would happen and to clarify the law to see where a court would go on that. So those cases aren't going to be taken, are they, under, under the goods and services provisions? Well, I think there are two, two things I would say to that, perhaps three things. Firstly, the Equality Commission has a role to play there because that is one of the functions, I would say, of the Equality Commission, that when they look at their strategic function, that they should be looking at those areas and funding those cases. Secondly, there may be individuals who are prepared to take a cost risk on a case like that. And there are certainly lawyers, myself included, who would be willing to run cases where there is a lower percentage chance of success if it advances the law, potentially. Mm. But there is still the costs problem. But there is a cost risk, yes. And then thirdly, increasingly, cases are being crowdfunded. Really? Now, tell me more about that. So, crowd justice has ballooned recently, and I think anyone listening to this will be aware of it. They have a, a, a massive platform, and I think they have an increasing turnover, and any meeting that I go to that's about legal issues, legal cases, there is often someone from Crowd Justice there. Right, so they will fund and pay costs if the disabled person loses their case. No, what, what happens is that an individual will set up a Crowd Justice page. Right. And Crowd Justice will assist in doing that, and they raise money. I mean, there are, you know, there are, it's, in a, in a way, it's plugging a gap. I mean, the other thing I should have said, of course, is that technically legal aid is available oh, right. for, for cases. And strictly speaking, even if a case doesn't have, isn't, doesn't satisfy the merits test, if there is a public interest in, in pursuing it... There's a reason then, you forgot to mention legal aid, though, wasn't there? Catherine? Well, yes. The chances of getting yes. it... Yes, I mean, I, I think, that, you know, the, the Commission, the Equality and Human Rights Commission, did a report into, um, into enforcement of cases under the equality provisions, and uh, it was pretty poor mm-hmm. in terms of legal aid. Um, so, it, you know, it, it should be available for cases. But well, what about... I want to bring you back to compensation, because that's something that we get asked a lot. What are the awards made against a service provider who has discriminated? And you said sort of around 7500 That isn't a massive incentive sometimes for a big business to change. Some of them, of course, want to do the right thing and will do so. But the incentive isn't there. But you read of cases in, in America, in the United States, where... Greyhound buses were fined $3 million 
and Target, the, the store Target, was $6 million. Now, those are eye-catching numbers. Mm. Would that be more of an incentive to change than the the law that we've got at the moment, the Equality Act with the compensation that's awarded, and even with the injunctions that you're talking about? Mm. Because let's face it, we you know as you said yourself, there isn't that much change being affected on, on the high street even. No, I mean we we don't we don't have a culture here of, of punitive damages, which is in essence what what that would be, and I think it would it would probably require a wholesale shift in the way in which we litigate to to have a, a system like that. I mean I'm, I'm sure that that if a if a company considered that that it was at risk of of paying out that sort of money, then it it might well take action, but I. I don't realistically think that that's something that's likely to happen. Has it meant that in the United States, organisations, businesses have done more to make themselves more accessible because of the risk of, of, of a fine like that of, of $3 million? I'm not sure that it has, to be honest. I mean, I, I, I went over there. Um, when, when the physical feature provisions came into force here in 2004, I went over to San Francisco to look at the accessibility there because San Francisco really was the model of accessibility. And we were using that as our, you know, this is what, this is what, ironically, we were saying, this is what London will be like in, you know, 10 years' time. Sadly, that was not to be. When I went there, um, you know, San Francisco had some fantastic accessibility features, but lawyers are still taking cases there. There are still issues with with accessibility all, all over the states. And if you look at the way in which the courts have interpreted the definition of disability, for example, there have been some real problems there. Um, so I don't think that money alone is the answer. There are cultural changes that, that need to be made. And yes, my, I think my view is that, that punitive damages alone would not be sufficient to make the change that's needed. What about bringing the claims of the employment tribunal instead of the county court? I don't think that that um, would be a particularly good idea myself. I, I think that um, whilst employment tribunals don't have fees at the moment, because I, I have to say that I, I don't think that reintroducing fees has been ruled out, the county court deals with the sorts of claims that services claims are founded in all the time. So you've got consumer issues, housing issues, policing issues such as police imprisonment, travel and education and you know, contract. The Employment Tribunal deals with employment. It, it's also incredibly overworked. I mean, sometimes you're waiting two years for a case to be listed. But even leaving the overwork aside, I don't think that it's right to silo equality cases, in effect, which I think is what that would be doing. I think that equality should be in the mainstream court. So if it's not moving the cases to the Employment Tribunal and it's not punitive damages that will affect real change, what will make a change real change for disabled people to get access and to enforce their rights under the Equality Act. Class action, maybe? There is scope for class action at the moment. So we're going to explain class action. 
So, well, I mean, in, in America, they have, a, they have a sort of different system of class action. Class action is, is when you have a, there are different definitions of it, but broadly speaking, you're talking about a number of people bringing a legal claim about, about one issue. So, for example, if, if you had a major department store that, that didn't have ramped access, you could have a, a number of wheelchair users who wanted to, to get in who could bring a claim. And there is scope for that. So, for example, in the, in the case of Ross and Ryanair, which Bella, you will probably remember, Indeed. Um, yes, the, Mr. Ross was having to pay for his wheelchair use at the airport. Which um, was more than actually his flight cost, if I yes, remember right. Yes, indeed, his flight to Perpignan. So that in the end, he bought his own wheelchair because that was cheaper. But in that case, there were a, a number of wheelchair users who were affected, and the Disability Rights Commission at the time took out an advert and, and got a number of people and, and had a group litigation for that. Um, so there is the scope for doing that sort of thing. That's interesting, because I don't think that's very well known, and that could be a challenge out there to, to disabled people club together bring a case together if you've all experienced the same discrimination. Is that right? Well, yes. I mean, I, I think, and there have been attempts to do that in, in various types of cases. So dealing with sort of rail industry issues. And uh, I mean, it, it, it's sometimes it, it proves difficult to get to get the right cases and to get the right sort of issues at the same time and, and mm. pulling them all together. So, so there is the scope for that. I'm, I mean, I'm not, I'm not convinced entirely in, in the non-employment context that we need that much more change in order to, to make a difference. I think there are other enforcement mechanisms that it would be useful to have. So I think, a, I think an independent or an independent inspector or indeed, for example, giving trading standards the, the power to inspect buildings and retailers, for example, in relation to their access would be a useful way of... What about websites? Because that's uh, often so many inaccessible websites, and the Target case was actually about website, wasn't it? And there was another grocery store as well. Yes. So would, would trading standards, do you think, cover that? I don't think, I don't think that would be in trading standards, really, but I mean, it, it, websites are probably one of the easier service providers to enforce against because you can do that fairly mechanically and the regulation is coming in this mm. year I think um, in relation to public authorities so that's an added incentive for them to comply with the legislation. Those are the sorts of mechanisms really because ultimately law alone is never going to achieve a change. Mm -hmm. It always has to be law in conjunction with other mechanisms and one of the difficulties, as I think the Women Equality Committee have pointed out, as the House of Lords have pointed out, as the Policy Commission have pointed out, is that individuals taking individual enforcement action is, is never going to result in any event in, in the change that is needed. There has to be a suite of measures, and at the moment there isn't enough. I also wonder if, if more needs to be done to raise awareness, both amongst disabled people, but also amongst service providers, of what they should be doing. That's where, of course, we come in at Business Disability Forum and you think there is perhaps more to be done in raising the awareness of what they could do, what they need to do. Yes, I think there is still still an incredible lack of awareness, actually, and I come across that in the cases that I do. Well, there's certainly food for thought there, so crowdfunding cases, grouping together perhaps to bring a claim, rather than disabled people fighting this alone. But on the flip side... 
more from government, more from uh, training standards perhaps, and more awareness really in education of service providers as well as disabled people. It's been fascinating. Thank you so much, Catherine.